Chapter Three of Captains Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captains Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Three. It was the forty-fathom slumber that clears the soul and eye and heart, and sends you to breakfast ravening. They emptied a big tin dish of juicy fragments of fish, the blood-ends the cook had collected overnight. They cleaned up the plates and pans of the elder mess, who were out fishing, sliced pork for the midday meal, swapped down the forecastle, filled the lamps, drew coal and water for the cook, and investigated the forehold where the boat's stores were stacked. It was another perfect day, soft, mild, and clear, and Harvey breathed to the very bottom of his lungs. More schooners had crept up in the night, and the long blue seas were full of sails and dories. Far away on the horizon the smoke of some liner, her hull invisible, smudged the blue, and to eastward a big ship's topgallant sails, just lifting, made a square nick in it. Disco Troop was smoking by the roof of the cabin, one eye on the craft around, and the other on the little fly at the mainmast head. "'When Dad kerflummoxes that way,' said Dan, in a whisper, "'he's doing some high-line thinking for all hands. I'll lay my wage and share will make berth soon. Dad, he knows the cod, and the fleet, they know Dad knows. See him coming up, one by one?' looking for nothing in particular, of course, but scrouging on us all the time. There's the Prince Leboa. She's a Chatham boat. She's crept up since last night. And see that big one with a patch in her foresail and a new jib? She's the Carrie Pittman from West Chatham. She won't keep her canvas long on lesser luxe change since last season. She don't do much except drift. There ain't an anchor made a little holder. When the smoke puffs up in little rings like that, Dad's studying the fish. If we speak to him now, he'll get mad. Last time I did, he just took and hove a boot at me." Disco Troop stared forward, the pipe between his teeth, with eyes that saw nothing. As his son said, he was studying the fish, pitting his knowledge and experience on the banks against the roving cod in his own sea. He accepted the presence of the inquisitive schooners on the horizon as a compliment to his powers, but now that it was paid he wished to draw away and make his berth alone, till it was time to go up to the Virgin and fish in the streets of that roaring town upon the waters. So Disco Troop thought of recent weather, in gales, currents, food supplies, and other domestic arrangements, from the point of view of a twenty-pound cod, was, in fact, for an hour a cod himself and looked remarkably like one. Then he removed the pipe from his teeth. "'Dad,' said Dan, "'we've done our chores. Can't we go overside a piece? It's good catching weather.' "'Not in that cherry-colored rig nor them half-baked brown shoes. Give him something fit to wear.' "'Dad's pleased. That settles it,' said Dan delightedly, dragging Harvey into the cabin, while Troop pitched a key down the steps. Dad keeps my spare rig where he can overhaul it, cause Ma says I'm careless. 
he rummaged through a locker, and in less than three minutes Harvey was adorned with fisherman's rubber boots that came half up his thigh, a heavy blue jersey well darned at the elbows, a pair of flippers, and a sou'wester. "'Now you look something like,' said Dan. "'Hurry!' "'Keep nigh and handy,' said Troop, "'and don't go visitin' round the fleet. If anyone asks you what I'm calculatin' to do, speak the truth, for you don't know.' A little red dory, labelled Hattie S., lay astern of the schooner. Dan hauled in the painter, and dropped lightly on to the bottom boards, while Harvey tumbled clumsily after. "'That's no way of getting into a boat,' said Dan. "'If there was any sea, you'd go to the bottom, sure. You've got to learn to meet her.' Dan fitted the thole-pins, took the forward thwart, and watched Harvey's work. The boy had rowed, in a ladylike fashion, on the Adirondack ponds, but there is a difference between squeaking pins and well-balanced rowlocks, light skulls and stubby eight-foot sea-oars. They stuck in the gentle swell, and Harvey grunted. "'Short! Row short!' said Dan. "'If you cramp your oar in any kind of sea, you're liable to turn her over. Ain't she a daisy? Mine, too!' The little dory was specklessly clean. In her bows lay a tiny anchor, two jugs of water, and some seventy fathoms of thin, brown dory roding. A tin dinner-horn rested in cleats just under Harvey's right hand, beside an ugly-looking maul, a short gaff, and a shorter wooden stick. A couple of lines, with very heavy leads and double cod-hooks, all neatly coiled on square reels, were stuck in their place by the gunwale. "'Where's the sail and mast?' said Harvey, for his hands were beginning to blister. Dan chuckled. "'You don't sail fishing dories much. You pull, but you needn't pull so hard. Don't you wish you owned her?' "'Well, I guess my father might give me one or two if I asked him,' Harvey replied. He had been too busy to think much of his family till then. "'That's so. I forgot your dad's a millionaire.' You don't act millionary any, now. But a dory and craft and gear," Dan spoke as though she were a whale-boat, "'costs a heap. Think your dad'd give you one for—for for a pet-like?" "'Shouldn't wonder. It would be most the only thing I haven't stuck him for yet." "'Must be a expensive kinder kid to home. Don't slitheroo that way, Harve. Short's the trick, because no sea's ever dead still and the swells'll crack the loom of the oar kicked harvey under the chin and knocked him backward that was what i was going to say i had to learn too but i wasn't more than eight years old when i got my schoolin harvey regained his seat with aching jaws and a frown no good getting mad at things dad says it's our own fault if we can't handle em he says let's try here manuel'll give us the water the Portuguese was rocking fully a mile away, but when Dan upended an oar he waved his left arm three times. Thirty fathom, said Dan, stringing a salt clam on to the hook. Over with the doughboys. Bait same as I do, Harve, and don't snarl your reel. Dan's line was out long before Harvey had mastered the mystery of baiting and heaving out the leads. The dory drifted along easily. It was not worth while to anchor till they were sure of good ground. "'Here we come!' 
Dan shouted, and a shower of spray rattled on Harvey's shoulders as a big cod flapped and kicked alongside. "'Muckle, Harvey, muckle! Under your hand, quick!' Evidently Muckle could not be the dinner-horn, so Harvey passed over the maul, and Dan scientifically stunned the fish before he pulled it inboard, and wrenched out the hook with a short wooden stick he called a gobstick. Then Harvey felt a tug, and pulled up zealously. "'Why, these are strawberries!' he shouted. "'Look!' The hook had fouled among a bunch of strawberries, red on one side and white on the other, perfect reproductions of the land-fruit except that there were no leaves, and the stem was all pipy and slimy. "'Don't touch em! Slat em off! Don't!' The warning came too late. Harvey had picked them from the hook and was admiring them. "'Ouch!' he cried, for his fingers throbbed as though he had grasped many nettles. "'Now you know what strawberry bottom means. Nothing except fish should be touched with the naked fingers,' Dad says. Slat em off again the gunnel and bait up, Harve. Lookin' won't help any. It's all in the wages. Harvey smiled at the thought of his ten and a half dollars a month, and wondered what his mother would say if she could see him hanging over the edge of a fishing dory in mid-ocean. She suffered agonies whenever he went out on Saranac Lake, and by the way, Harvey remembered distinctly that he used to laugh at her anxieties. Suddenly the line flashed through his hand, stinging even through the flippers, the woolen circlets supposed to protect it. "'He's a logie! Give him room according to his strength!' cried Dan. "'I'll help you!' "'No, you won't!' Harvey snapped as he hung on to the line. "'It's my first fish. Is—is is it a whale?' "'Halibut, maybe!' Dan peered down into the water alongside and flourished the big muckle, ready for all chances. Something white and oval flickered and fluttered through the green. "'I'll lay my wage and share. He's over a hundred. Are you so everlasting anxious to land him alone?' Harvey's knuckles were raw and bleeding where they had been banged against the gunwale. His face was purple-blue between excitement and exertion. He dripped with sweat was half-blinded from staring at the circling sunlit ripples around the swiftly moving line. The boys were tired long ere the halibut, who took charge of them and the dory for the next twenty minutes. But the big flat fish was gaffed, and hauled in at last. "'Beginner's luck,' said Dan, wiping his forehead. "'He's all of a hundred. Harvey looked at the huge grey and mottled creature with unspeakable pride. He had seen halibut many times on marble slabs ashore, but it had never occurred to him to ask how they came inland. Now he knew, and every inch of his body ached with fatigue. "'If Dan was along,' said Dan, hauling up, "'he'd read the signs plain as print. The fish are running smaller and smaller, and you've took about as logy a halibut's as we're apt to find this trip. Yesterday's catch—did you notice it?—was all big fish and no halibut. Dad, he's read them signs right off. Dad says everything on the banks is signs, and can be read wrong or right. Dad's deeper than the whale-hole." Even as he spoke someone fired a pistol on the We're Here, and a potato-basket was run up in the fore-rigging. "'What did I say now? That's the call for the whole crowd. Dad's onter something, or he'd never break fishing this time of day. Reel up, Harve, and we'll pull back. 
they were to windward of the schooner, just ready to flirt the dory over the still sea, when sounds of woe half a mile off led them to Penn, who was careering about a fixed point, for all the world like a gigantic water-bug. The little man backed away and came down again with enormous energy, but at the end of each manoeuvre his dory swung round and snubbed herself on her rope. "'We'll have to help him, else he'll root and seed here,' said Dan. "'What's the matter?' said Harvey. This was a new world, where he could not lay down the law to his elders, but had to ask questions humbly. And the sea was horribly big and unexcited. "'Anchor's fouled. Pen's always losing em. Lost two this trip already. On Sandy Bottom, too. And Dad says next one he loses, sure as fishin', he'll give him the kellig. That'd break Penn's heart. "'What's a kellig?' said Harvey, who had a vague idea it might be some kind of marine torture, like keel-hauling in the story-books. "'Big stone instead of an anchor. You can see a kellig ridin' in the bows fur as you can see a dory, and all the fleet knows what it means. They'd guy him dreadful. Penn couldn't stand that no more'n a dog with a dipper to his tail. He's so everlasting sensitive. Hello, Penn. Stuck again? Don't try any more of your patents. Come up on her and keep your rodin' straight up and down. It doesn't move, said the little man, panting. It doesn't move at all, and indeed I've tried everything. What's all this hurrah's nest ford? said Dan, pointing to a wild tangle of spare oars and dory roding, all matted together by the hand of inexperience. Oh, that! said Penn, proudly. Is a Spanish windlass. Mr. Salter showed me how to make it, but even that doesn't move her. Dan bent low over the gunwale to hide a smile, twitched once or twice on the roding, and, behold, the anchor drew at once. Haul up, Penn, he said, laughing, or she'll get stuck again. They left him regarding the weed-hung flukes of the little anchor with big, pathetic blue eyes, and thanking them profusely. "'Oh, say, while I think of it, Harve,' said Dan, when they were out of earshot, "'Pen ain't quite all cocked. He ain't nowise dangerous, but his mind's give out. See?' "'Is that so, or is it one of your father's judgments?' Harvey asked, as he bent to his oars. He felt he was learning to handle them more easily. "'Dad ain't mistook this time. Pen's a sure enough loony. No, he ain't that exactly. So much as a harmless idiot. It was this way. You're rowing quite so, Harve. And I tell you, cause it's right, you oughter know. He was a Moravian preacher once. Jacob Bowler was his name, Dad told me, and he lived with his wife and four children somewheres out Pennsylvania way. Well, Penn, he took his folks along to a Moravian meeting, camp meeting most like, and they stayed over just one night in Johnstown. You've heard talk of Johnstown? Harvey considered. Yes, I have, but I don't know why. It sticks in my head same as Ashtabula. Both was big accidents, that's why, Harve. Well, that one single night Penn and his folks was to the hotel, Johnstown was wiped out. Dambustin' fluttered her, and the houses struck adrift and bumped into each other and sunk. I've seen the pictures, and they're dreadful. Penny saw his folks drowned all in a heap, for he rightly knew what was coming. 
his mind give out from that on. He mistrusted something had happened up to Johnstown, but for the poor life of him he couldn't remember what, and he just drifted around smiling and wondering. He didn't know what he was, nor yet what he had been, and that way he run again Uncle Salters, who was visiting Allegheny City. Half my mother's folks, they live scattered inside of Pennsylvania, and Uncle Salters he visits around winters. Uncle Salters he kind of adopted Penn, well knowing what his trouble was, and he brought him east, and he give him work on his farm. Why, I heard him call him Penn a farmer last night, when the boats bumped. Is your Uncle Salters a farmer? Farmer? shouted Dan. There ain't water enough tween here and Hatteras to wash the fur mold off of his boots. He's just everlasting farmer. Why, Harve, I've seen that man hitch up a bucket long toward sundown and set twiddling the spigot to the scuttlebutt same as twas a cow's bag. He's that much farmer. Well, Pan and he, they ran the farm up Exeter way twas. Uncle Salters he sold it this spring to a jay from Boston as wanted to build a summer house, and he got a heap for it. Well, them two loonies scratched along till, one day, Penn's church he'd belonged to, the Moravians, found out where he was drifted and layin', and wrote to Uncle Salters. Never heard what they said, exactly, but Uncle Salters was mad. He's Episcopalian, mostly, but he just let him have it both sides of the bow, as if he was a Baptist, and says he weren't going to give up Penn to any blame Moravian connection in Pennsylvania or anywheres else. Then he came to Dad, towing Penn, that was two trips back, and says he and Penn must fish a trip for their health. Guess he thought the Moravians wouldn't hunt the banks for Jacob Bowler. Dad was agreeable, for Uncle Salters had been fishing off and on for thirty years, when he warn't inventing patent manures, and he took quarter share in the weir here, and the trip done Penn so much good, Dad made a habit of taking him. Some day, Dad says, he'll remember his wife and kids and Johnstown, and then, like as not, he'll die, Dad says. Don't you talk about Johnstown nor such things to Penn, or Uncle Salters he'll heave you overboard. Poor Penn, murmured Harvey. I should never have thought Uncle Salters cared for him by the look of em together. I like Penn, though. We all do, said Dan. We ought to have given him a tow, but I wanted to tell you first. They were close to the schooner now, the other boats a little behind them. You needn't heave in the dories till after dinner, said Troop from the deck. We'll dress down right off. Fix table, boys. Deeper in the whale deep said Dan, with a wink, as he set the gear for dressing down. "'Look at them boats that have edged up since morning. They're all waiting on Dad. See em, Harve?' "'They are all alike to me.' And indeed to a landsman the nodding schooners around seemed run from the same mould. "'They ain't, though. That yaller dirty packet with its bowsprit, Steve, that way. She's the hope of Prague. Nick Brady's her skipper.' the meanest man on the banks. We'll tell him so when we strike the main ledge. Way off yonder's the day's eye. The two Geralds own her. She's some Harwich, fastish, too, and his good luck. But Dad, he'd find fish in a graveyard. Them other three side along. They're the Margie Smith, Rose, and Edith C. Whelan, 
all from home. Guess we'll see the Abbey M. Deering tomorrow, Dad, won't we? They're all slipping over from the shoal of Quiro. You won't see many boats tomorrow, Danny. When Troop called his son Danny, it was a sign that the old man was pleased. Boys, we're too crowded, he went on, addressing the crew as they clambered inboard. We'll leave them to bait big and catch small. He looked at the catch in the pen, and it was curious to see how little and level the fish ran. Save for Harvey's halibut, there was nothing over fifteen pounds on deck. I'm waiting on the weather, he added. You'll have to make it yourself, Disco, for there's no sign I can see, said Long Jack, sweeping the clear horizon. And yet, half an hour later, as they were dressing down, the bank fog dropped on them, between fish and fish, as they say. It drove steadily and in wreaths, curling and smoking along the colourless water. The men stopped dressing down without a word. Long Jack and Uncle Salters slipped the windlass brakes into their sockets, and began to heave up the anchor, the windlass jarring as the wet hempen cable strained on the barrel. Manuel and Tom Platt gave a hand at the last. The anchor came up with a sob, and the riding sail bellied as troops steadied her at the wheel. "'Up jib and foresail,' said he. "'Slip him in the smother!' shouted Long Jack, making fast the jib-sheet, while the others raised the clacking, rattling rings of the foresail, and the fore-boom creaked as the we're here looked up into the wind and dived off into blank, whirling white. "'There's wind behind this fog,' said Troop. It was all wonderful beyond words to Harvey, and the most wonderful part was that he heard no orders except an occasional grunt from Troop, ending with, "'That's good, my son.' "'Never seen anchor weighed before?' said Tom Platt to Harvey, gaping at the damp canvas of the foresail. "'No. Where are we going?' "'Fish and make berth, as you'll find out for you've been a week aboard.' It's all new to you, but we never know what may come to us. Now take me, Tom Platt. I'd never have thought. It's better than fourteen dollars a month and a bullet in your belly, said Troop from the wheel. Ease your jumbo a grind. Dollars and cents better, returned the man-o'-war's man, doing something to a big jib with a wooden spar tied to it. But we didn't think of that when we manned the windlass brakes on the Miss Jim Buck, outside Beaufort Harbor, with Fort Macon heaving hot shot at our stem, and a living gale atop of all. Where was you then, Disco? Just here, or hereabouts, Disco replied, earning my bread on the deep waters, and dodging red privateers. Sorry I can't accommodate you with red-hot shot, Tom Platt, but I guess we'll come out all right on wind for we see Eastern Point. There was an incessant slapping and chatter at the bows now, varied by a solid thud and a little spout of spray that clattered down on the forecastle. The rigging dripped clammy drops, and the men lounged along the lee of the house, all save Uncle Salters, who sat stiffly on the main hatch, nursing his stung hands. "'Guess she'd carry Stasel,' said Disco, rolling one eye at his brother. "'Guess she wouldn't to any sort of profit.' "'What's the sense of wasting canvas?' the farmer-sailor replied. The wheel twitched almost imperceptibly in Disco's hands. A few seconds later a hissing wave-top slashed diagonally across the boat, 
smote Uncle Salters between the shoulders, and drenched him from head to foot. He rose sputtering, and went forward, only to catch another. "'See Dad chase him all around the deck,' said Dan. "'Uncle Salters, he thinks his quarter shares are canvas. Dad's put this duckin' act up on him two trips running. Ha, <laughs> ha! That found him where he feeds.' Uncle Salters had taken refuge by the foremast, but a wave slapped him over the knees. Disco's face was as blank as the circle of the wheel. "'Guess she'd lie easier under staysail, Salters,' said Disco, as though he had seen nothing. "'Set your old kite, then,' roared the victim through a cloud of spray. "'Only don't lay it to me if anything happens. Then you go below right off and get your coffee.' and you ought to have more sense than to bum around on deck this weather. "'Now they'll swill coffee and play checkers till the cows come home,' said Dan, as Uncle Salters hustled Penn into the fore-cabin. "'Looks to me likes if we'd all be doing so for a spell. There's nothing in creation deader limpsy idler than a banker when she ain't on fish.' "'I'm glad you spoke, Danny,' cried Long Jack, who had been casting round in search of amusement. I'd clean forgot we'd got a passenger under that tea-wharf hat. There's no idleness for them that don't know their ropes. Pass him along, Tom Platt, and we'll larn him. "'Tain't my trick this time,' grinned Dan. "'You've got to go it alone. Dan learned me with a rope's end.' For an hour Long Jack walked his prey up and down, teaching, as he said, things at the sea that every man must know, blind, drunk, or asleep. There is not much gear to a seventy-ton schooner with a stump foremast, but Long Jack had a gift of expression. When he wished to draw Harvey's attention to the peak halyards, he dug his knuckles into the back of the boy's neck, and kept him at gaze for half a minute. He emphasized the difference between fore and aft generally by rubbing Harvey's nose along a few feet of the boom, and the lead of each rope was fixed in Harvey's mind by the end of the rope itself. The lesson would have been easier, had the deck been at all free, but there appeared to be a place on it for everything and anything, except a man. Forward lay the windlass and its tackle, with the chain and hemp cables, all very unpleasant to trip over, the forecastle stovepipe, and the gurry-butts by the forecastle hatch to hold the fish-livers. After these the foreboom and booby of the main hatch took all the space that was not needed for the pumps and dressing-pens. Then came the nests of dories lashed to ring-bolts by the quarter-deck, the house, with tubs and oddments lashed all around it, and last the sixty-foot main-boom in its crutch, splitting things lengthwise, to duck and dodge under every time. Tom Platt, of course, could not keep his oar out of the business, but ranged alongside with enormous and unnecessary descriptions of sails and spars on the old Ohio. Never mind what he says. Attend to me, innocence. Tom Platt, this ballyhoo's not the Ohio, and you're mixin' the boy bad. He'll be ruined for life, beginning on a fore and after this way, Tom Platt pleaded. Give him a chance to know a few leadin' principles. Sailin's an art, Harvey, and I'll show you if I had you in the foretop of the— I know it. You'd talk him dead and cold. Silence, Tom Platt. Now, after all I've said, how'd you reef the foresail, Harve? Take your time answering. Haul that in, said Harvey, pointing to leeward. What? The North Atlantic? No, the boom. 
They run, then run that rope you showed me back there. That's no way, Tom Platt burst in. Quiet, he's larning, and it's not the name's good yet. Go on, Harve. Oh, it's the reef pennant. I'd hook the tackle onto the reef pennant, and then let down. Lower the sail, child, lower, said Tom Platt in a professional agony. Lower the throat and peak halyards, Harvey went on. Those names stuck in his head. Lay your hand on em, said Long Jack. Harvey obeyed. Lower till that roop-lope on the after leech Chris. Uh, no, it's Kringle, till the Kringle was down on the boom. Then I'd tie her up the way you said, and then I'd hoist up the peak and throat halyards again. You've forgot to pass the tack earring, but with time and help you learn. There's good and just reason for every rope aboard, or else twould be overboard. Do you follow me? Tis dollars and cents I'm putting into your pocket, you skinny little supercargo, so that when you're filled out you can ship from Boston to Cuba and tell em Long Jack larned you. Now I'll chase you around a piece, callin' the ropes, and you lay your hand on em as I call." He began, and Harvey, who was feeling rather tired, walked slowly to the rope named. A rope's end licked round his ribs, and nearly knocked the breath out of him. "'When you own a boat,' said Tom Platt, with severe eyes, "'you can walk. Till then take all orders at the run, once more, to make sure.' Harvey was in a glow with the exercise, and this last cut warmed him thoroughly. Now he was a singularly smart boy, the son of a very clever man and a very sensitive woman, with a fine resolute temper that systematic spoiling had nearly turned to mulish obstinacy. He looked at the other men, and saw that even Dan did not smile. It was evidently all in a day's work, though it hurt abominably, so he swallowed the hint with a gulp and a gasp and a grin. The same smartness that led him to take such advantage of his mother made him very sure that no one on the boat, except maybe Penn, would stand the least nonsense. One learns a great deal from a mere tone. Long Jack called over half a dozen more ropes, and Harvey danced over the deck like an eel at ebb tide, one eye on Tom Platt. "'Very good, very good done,' said Manuel. After supper I show you a little schooner I make, with all her ropes, so we shall learn." First class for a passenger,' said Dan. "'Dad, he's just allowed you be worth your salt, maybe, fore you drowned. That's a heap for Dad. I'll learn you more our next watch together.' "'Taller,' grunted Disco, peering through the fog as it smoked over the bows. There was nothing to be seen ten feet beyond the surging jib-boon while alongside rolled the endless procession of solemn, pale waves, whispering and upping one to the other. "'Now I'll learn you something Long Jack can't,' shouted Tom Platt, as from a locker by the stern he produced a battered, deep-sea lead hollowed at one end, smeared the hollow from a saucer full of mutton-tallow, and went forward. "'I'll learn you how to fly the blue pigeon. Shoo!' Disco did something to the wheel that checked the schooner's way, while Manuel, with Harvey to help, and a proud boy was Harvey, let down the jib and a lump on the boom. The lead sung a deep droning song as Tom Platt whirled it round and round. "'Go ahead, man,' 
said Long Jack impatiently. We're not drawing twenty-five foot off Fire Island in a fog. There's no trick to it. Don't be jealous, Galway. The released lead plopped into the sea far ahead as the schooner surged slowly forward. Soundin' is a trick, though, said Dan. When your dipsy lead's all the eye you're like to have for a week. What do you make it, Dad? Disco's face relaxed. His skill and honour were involved in the march he had stolen on the rest of the fleet, and he had his reputation as a master artist who knew the bank's blindfold. Sixty, maybe, if I'm any judge,' he replied, with a glance at the tiny compass in the window of the house. Sixty, sung out Tom Platt, hauling in great wet coils. The schooner gathered way once more. "'Heave!' said Disco, after a quarter of an hour. "'What do you make it?' Dan whispered, and he looked at Harvey proudly. But Harvey was too proud of his own performances to be impressed just then. Fifty, said the father. "'I mistrust we're right over the nick of Green Bank on old sixty-five. Fifty, roared Tom Platt. They could scarcely see him through the fog. "'She's bust within a yard, like the shells at Fort Macon.' "'Bait up, Harve.' said Dan, diving for a line on the reel. The schooner seemed to be straying promiscuously through the smother, her headsail banging wildly. The men waited and looked at the boys, who began fishing. Yeah. Dan's lines twitched on the scored and scarred rail. "'Now how in thunder did Dad know? Help us here, Harve. It's a big un. Poke hook, too!' They hauled together, and landed a goggle-eyed twenty-pound cod. He had taken the bait right into his stomach. "'Why, he's all covered with little crabs!' cried Harvey, turning him over. "'By the great hook-block! They're lousy already!' said Long Jack. "'Disco, you keep your spare eyes under the keel!' Splash went the anchor, and they all heaved over the lines, each man taking his place at the bulwarks. "'Are they good to eat?' Harvey panted, as he lugged in another crab-covered cod. Sure. With their lousy, it's a sign they've all been herding together by the thousand, and when they take the bait that way, they're hungry. Never mind how the bait sets. They'll bite on the bare hook. Say, this is great, Harvey cried, as the fish came in gasping and splashing, nearly all poke-hooked, as Dan had said. Why can't we always fish from the boat instead of from the dories? All us can, till we begin to dress down. After that, the heads and offals would scare the fish to fundy. Boat-fishin' ain't reckoned progressive, though, unless you know as much as Dad knows. Guess we'll run out our trawl to-night. Harder on the back, this, than from the dory, ain't it?" It was rather back-breaking work, for in a dory the weight of a cod is water-borne till the last minute, and you are, so to speak, abreast of him, but the few feet of a schooner's freeboard makes so much extra dead-hauling and stooping over the bulwarks cramps the stomach. But it was wild and furious sport, so long as it lasted, and a big pile lay aboard when the fish ceased biting. "'Where's Penn and Uncle Salters?' Harvey asked, slapping the slime off his oilskins, and reeling up the line in careful imitation of the others. "'Gets coffee and see.' Under the yellow glare of the lamp on the pawl-post, the forecastle table down and opened, utterly unconscious of fish or weather, 
sat the two men, a checkerboard between them, Uncle Salter snarling at Penn's every move. "'What's the matter now?' said the former, as Harvey, one hand in the leather loop at the head of the ladder, hung shouting to the cook. "'Big fish and lousy, heaps and heaps,' Harvey replied, quoting Long Jack. "'How's the game?' Little Penn's jaw dropped. "'Twarn't none of his fault,' snapped Uncle Salters. "'Penn's deef.' "'Checkers, weren't it?' said Dan, as Harvey staggered aft with the steaming coffee and a tin pail. "'That lets us out of cleaning up to-night. Dad's a just man. They'll have to do it.' "'And two young fellers I know bait up a tub or so of trawl while they're cleaning,' said Disco, lashing the wheel to his taste. "'Uh, guess I'd rather clean up, Dad.' "'Don't doubt it. You won't, though. Dress down. Dress down.' Pennell pitch while you two bait up. "'Why in thunder didn't them blame boys tell us you'd struck on?' said Uncle Salters, shuffling to his place at the table. "'This knife's gum blunt, Dan.' "'If sticking out cable don't wake you, guess you'd better hire a boy of your own,' said Dan, muddling about in the dusk over the tubs full of trawl line lashed to windward of the house. "'Oh, Harve, don't you want to slip down and get's bait?' "'Bait as we are,' said Disco. "'I mistrust shag-fishing will pay better, as things go.' That meant the boys would bait with selected offal of the cod as the fish were cleaned, an improvement on paddling barehanded in the little bait-barrels below. The tubs were full of neatly coiled line carrying a big hook every few feet, and the testing and baiting of every single hook, with the stowage of the baited line so that it should run clear when shot from the dory, was a scientific business. Dan managed it in the dark without looking, while Harvey caught his fingers on the barbs and bewailed his fate. But the hooks flew through Dan's fingers like tatting on an old maid's lap. "'I helped bait up trawl ashore fore I could well walk,' he said. "'But it's a puttering job all the same. Oh, Dad!' This shouted towards the hatch, where Disco and Tom Platt were salting. "'How many skates you reckon we'll need?' "'About three. Hurry!' "'There's three hundred fathom to each tub,' Dan explained. "'More'n enough to lay out to-night. Ouch! Slipped up there, I did.' He stuck his finger in his mouth. "'I tell you, Harve, there ain't money in Gloucester had hired me to ship on a regular trawler. It may be progressive, but, barrin' that, it's the putterinest, slim-jammest business top of earth.' "'I don't know what this is, if it isn't regular trawlin,' said Harvey sulkily. "'My fingers are all cut to frazzles.' "'Pshaw! This is just one of Dad's blame experiments. He don't trawl lest there's mighty good reason for it. Dad knows. That's why he's baitin' as he is. We'll have her saggin' full when we take her up, or we won't see a fin.' Penn and Uncle Salters cleaned up as Disco had ordained, but the boys profited little. No sooner were the tubs furnished than Tom Platt and Long Jack, who had been exploring the inside of a dory with a lantern, snatched them away, loaded up the tubs in some small painted trawl buoys, and hove the boat overboard into what Harvey regarded as an exceedingly rough sea. "'They'll be drowned! Why, the dory's loaded like a freight-car!' he cried. "'We'll be back,' said Long Jack. 
and in case you're not looking for us, we'll lay into you both at the trawl snarl. The dory surged up on the crest of a wave, and just when it seemed impossible that she could avoid smashing against the schooner's side, slid over the ridge and was swallowed up in the damp dusk. "'Take a hold here, and keep ringing steady,' said Dan, passing Harvey the lanyard of a bell that hung just behind the windlass. Harvey rang lustily, for he felt two lives depended on him. But Disco in the cabin, scrawling in the logbook, did not look like a murderer, and when he went to supper he even smiled dryly at the anxious Harvey. "'This ain't no weather,' said Dan. "'Why, you and me could set that trawl. They've only gone out just far enough so as not to foul our cable. They don't need no bell, really.' Clang, clang, clang. Harvey kept it up, varied with occasional rub-a-dubs, for another half-hour. There was a bellow and a bump alongside. Manuel and Dan raced to the hooks of the dory-tackle. Long Jack and Tom Platt arrived on deck together, it seemed, one half the North Atlantic at their backs, and the dory followed them in the air, landing with a clatter. "'Nary a snarl,' said Tom Platt, as he dripped. "'Danny, you'll do yet.' "'The pleasure of your company to the banquet,' said Long Jack, squelching the water from his boots as he capered like an elephant, and stuck an oil-skinned arm into Harvey's face. "'We do be condescended to honour the second half with our presence.' And off they all four rolled to supper, where Harvey stuffed himself to the brim on fish chowder and fried pies, and fell fast asleep just as Manuel produced from a locker a lovely two-foot model of the Lucy Holmes, his first boat, and was going to show Harvey the ropes. Harvey never even twiddled his fingers as Penn pushed him into his bunk. "'It must be a sad thing, a very sad thing,' said Penn, watching the boy's face, "'for his mother and his father, who think he's dead. To lose a child, to lose a man-child.' "'Get out of this, Penn,' said Dan. "'Go aft and finish your game with Uncle Salters. Tell Dad I'll stand Harv's watch if he don't care.' He's played out. "'Very good boy,' said Manuel, slipping out of his boots, and disappearing into the black shadows of the lower bunk. "'Speck he make good man, Danny. I no see he is any so mad as your papa, he says. Eh, what?' Dan chuckled, but the chuckle ended in a snore. It was thick weather outside, with a rising wind, and the elder men stretched their watches. The hours struck clear in the cabin. The nosing boughs slapped and scuffled with the seas. The forecastle stovepipe hissed and sputtered as the spray caught it, and the boys slept on, while Disco, Long Jack, Tom Platt, and Uncle Salters, each in turn, stumped aft to look at the wheel, forward to see that the anchor held, or to veer out a little more cable against chafing, with a glance at the dim anchor light between each round. End of chapter.